0: For a congressional reporter like Liz Goodwin, today's a weird day. It's the day most of the people she reports on are going to find out if they still have jobs. It's the day she's going to find out whether next year, instead of covering the January 6th committee, she'll be covering an investigation into Hunter Biden. And it is also the culmination of a bitter campaign
1: season. Election Day in some ways feels like a relief as someone who covers politics because it just feels like each campaign cycle is getting longer and longer and um, the atmosphere around them is more and more toxic. Liz has
0: been thinking about this toxic environment a lot lately, and not just because it's her workplace. Through the summer, she has reported on attack after attack, on the politicians she relies on as sources, In July, a man assaulted New York gubernatorial candidate and congressman, Lee Zeldin.
1: Zeldin's campaign says a man climbed on stage
0: and attempted to stab him. That same month, a different man was arrested in front of Representative Pramila Jayapal's house. He'd threatened to kill the leader of the Progressive Caucus. It was late Saturday night when neighbors of U.S. Representative Pramila Jayapal started calling 911. They were witnessing a man screaming outside her West Seattle home. Then, of course, there was the attack just the other week when an intruder broke into Nancy Pelosi's home and hit her husband over the head with a hammer. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi's
1: husband, Paul Pelosi, hospitalized after a violent attack with a hammer in the San Francisco home he shares with the speaker.
0: What was your first thought when you heard about that attack? It was Friday,
1: October 28th, right? Yeah, I think, I mean, my first thought was, it, it wasn't surprise, really, which is
0: kind of sad. Pretty much immediately, Liz connected what happened to Paul Pelosi to another incident, in which an armed man showed up outside Justice Brett Kavanaugh's home. This was back in June, when the country was waiting for the Supreme Court decision that would overturn Roe v. Wade. Like Pelosi's attacker, Kavanaugh's showed up in the middle of the night with zip ties and a plan. And as in the Pelosi case, Kavanaugh was not home. So his security detail wasn't there
1: either. It revealed just how vulnerable politicians and their families are right now. It had started this conversation about that, and Congress actually did pass a bill or attach something to a bill that boosted security for Supreme Court members' families. But that is not something that members of Congress get, even the the few that do have 24-7 security details. Well, there are so many of them. There are more than 500 members. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they can't even provide the members themselves security, much less their families. One thing that stands out to me is that we seem
0: to have all this data that threats to politicians exist right now. And we don't seem to know what to do about it. Like one detail that stood out to me in the reporting around the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband is that the Capitol Police, who are charged with protecting members of Congress, they had a live video stream of Pelosi's home. And in fact, the break-in was recorded and they had it, but no one was watching. And it just shows how everyone knows there's a problem and they need to be on the lookout. We don't seem to have the resources to address it, though.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I think that detail is really telling.
0: It just makes you wonder, like, all these people who are running for election today, like, what kind of job are they walking into? Totally. Today on the show, as you head into the voting booth, we'll talk about why winning an election is more dangerous than it used to be. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. In the wake of the attack last month on Paul Pelosi, it's clear that political violence is on the minds of many of us. A poll released just last week showed that 9 out of 10 Americans say they're concerned about the growing threat. The Washington Post's Liz Goodwin shares this concern. She first heard about the attack on Paul Pelosi in the early morning hours a couple of Fridays back. Her colleagues had started sending around a statement from Nancy Pelosi's office, which was short but alarming. It said the Speaker's husband was hospitalized and that the motivations for his assault
1: were under investigation. I mean, it was just incredibly shocking. And then it was, you know, a matter of trying to figure out where is she? uh, What is his Condition exactly, and you know how did this happen? There's just a a million questions that immediately flowed from the first statement. Can you tell me about the reaction among members of Congress?
0: Because these are folks who know that their job can be dangerous, and in some way may have been primed for news like this. But I imagine if you've been through January 6th as a Congressperson, and, and then you see this attack. It just must be another thing that's making you more upset.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's uh, Democratic members who kind of lived through January 6th and found they were having trouble getting over it. They were really still reliving a lot of the violence. And so they sort of formed a group text, basically a support group chat afterwards. Um, And that chat has been very active in the days since, um, since the attack, because I think it is bringing up a lot of the same fears that lawmakers have had since January 6th. And it just makes it more real and it makes everyone feel vulnerable. And, you know, most members of Congress have a crazy voicemail on their phone or have had someone yell at them in front of their house. And then I think when they see this happening to Pelosi's husband in her home, it just kind of underscores that everyone's at risk.
0: Over the last decade, threats to lawmakers have mushroomed. While the Capitol Police recorded about 900 of them in 2016, they documented more than 9,000 threats of political violence in 2021. Members of Congress have been worried for their safety since 2011. That's when Democratic Representative Gabby Giffords was shot while meeting with constituents in a supermarket parking lot.
1: Yeah, I think 2011, I mean, it was definitely... You know, covered and I reacted to it as an assassination attempt. Uh, But it also lacked some coherence because the shooter himself had a kind of confused um, ideology. It didn't seem connected to, you know, him having read some conspiracy about her or feeling hate towards her due to some political ideology. And so I think that made it feel a little bit separate. I think it definitely underscored how vulnerable members are, but it didn't feel like part of, you know, a growing problem with rhetoric encouraging violence. I mean, the next kind of assassination attempt would be the 2017 baseball shooting. Emergency crews rushed injured House Majority Whip Steve Scalise into a helicopter after a shooter opened fire during an early morning baseball practice for congressional Republicans. Steve Scalise. Where someone who hates Republicans goes and attacks a group of lawmakers who are practicing for a baseball game and ends up shooting Steve Scalise, a Republican from Louisiana. And I think that felt more connected to just heated, heightened political feelings, emotions at the time. And to me, that kind of is when we enter this new phase.
0: A lot of people pointed out the way the Republican Party has targeted Nancy Pelosi in particular for years now. And how the result of that is that she is one of the most threatened members of Congress. Can you tell me how Nancy Pelosi became a target? When did Republicans begin focusing on her
1: and why? So she became a target when she became the first woman speaker of the House. And then, you know, she was just the face of Democrats from that point forward And, you know, 2010 was the midterm election where the Tea Party got really fired up. And she was an incredibly motivating part of that. It was Obama. It was Pelosi. Their faces, you know, looming in ads.
0: Now, gorged on our taxpayer dollars, Pelosi has grown into a power-hungry Goliath, defying the will of the American people.
1: Notably a black man and a woman. Right. And I think, you know, she's very easy to... Characterized, lampoon. She's the San Francisco woman, you know, sort of typical liberal boogeyman in some ways, and that's just been gold for Republicans for a really long time. And for me, it's just it's kind of impressive the staying power as well, because even in this election, we've done analysis about topics in Republican political ads, and she is up there. Biden, Pelosi, and other communist Democrats hate America hate God and hate our way of life. Get ready for the mother of all tax bombs.
0: Pelosi and the president have declared war on working Americans.
1: And I think, you know, the U.S. Capitol Police basically say the threats against her are just in a league of their own. So she's just someone who's attracted so much vitriol on the right consistently. And then, you know, as The atmosphere in general got more toxic. Um, The threats against her got more serious and uh, more voluminous.
0: And Republicans have run ads that mocked her, dehumanized her. One Republican actually wrote an op-ed for The Washington Post basically saying, sorry, (laughs) I ran a campaign that was encouraging folks to fire Pelosi and it had fire around her. And it was just it was too the rhetoric was too hot, essentially. Are you hearing any Republicans in power talking seriously
1: about moderating their rhetoric at all? I have not heard that discussion. Um, I think there's Republicans who privately will say that they don't like how Trump changed the tenor of political discourse. And, you know, that that has ramifications not just for Democrats, but also for Republicans. I mean, when, when January 6th happened, the crowd was screaming, hang hey, Mike Pence, who's a Republican. And I think there were a lot of you know, Senate Republicans, especially who privately would say, you know, that could be me, that could be anyone, right? Like, (laughs) there's nothing that um, protects you if Trump decides to, you know, focus the rage of his supporters on you. But I'm not seeing that translate into, you know, widespread condemnation of that. Or, you know, I've seen some general calls to tone down the political rhetoric, but Nothing sort of like soul-searching level, no.
0: After the break, as the Capitol Police try to protect Congress, they face one obstacle that's particularly hard to get around, the members themselves. The way security works for members of Congress has been changing in the last few years, but very slowly. Since only political leaders are guaranteed a security detail, some members end up spending thousands of dollars of campaign funds to stay safe, which has a lot of politicians wondering, what's fair here? At the same time, the Capitol Police, who are assigned to protect them, say they are
1: impossibly stretched. The U.S. Capitol Police have really talked about how they're lacking resources. They were given more money in 2018 to beef up training, to hire more officers, but it, it continues to be an issue, which is something you know we saw after the January 6th attack as well. They're begging for more officers, and it's partially a resources issue. It's partially a recruitment issue. Morale has obviously been very low since the January 6th attack, But there's also just the overarching limitation, which is that they don't protect members of Congress when they're not in the building, unless you are a member of the leadership team. I think there's about 10 people who get that protection. And then in the past year, they extended protection to members of the select committee on January 6th because the volume of threats were just so high. Yeah. I mean, last week, the head of the Capitol Police basically admitted that he doesn't have enough resources to protect members. Yeah, he's been very candid about it. And I think part of it is because he knows Congress is the one, they get to decide how much money and resources the Capitol police get to have. So I think he's motivated to paint, you know, a pretty realistic, but also kind of bleak picture about what they're able to do right now.
0: Yeah. I mean, I was struck by the fact that Lawmakers were given up to $10,000 just in August to set up security systems in their home. So it's it's not something they're unconcerned about. But it sounds like, you know, what the head of the Capitol Police is saying is like, more. (laughs) We need more. And that seems like a challenge to have the members give more money for themselves, essentially.
1: It is, yes. I mean, especially imagining if Republicans do take back the House, it's just hard to imagine um, a big boost in security for members because I think that Republicans are already wary of the political optics of any kind of extra money for members of Congress. Um, And I think there's also been some politicization of the security issues within Congress because, for example, after January 6th, Pelosi had metal detectors installed outside of the floor, the House floor, so that members cannot bring weapons onto the floor or anyone who goes onto the floor can't bring weapons. And that's been a huge point of contention for Republicans. It's interesting that you highlight this issue
0: with the magnometers because it really draws this connection between political violence and outside actors. And the members themselves and how they're deeply involved with stoking some of the violence that we're seeing. And I was thinking about that because like, I remember really clearly an incident from right after January 6th where Missouri Representative Cory Bush and Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene had been assigned to offices right next to each other and it became a big deal like they were fighting and they they moved offices to be away from each other and to me it was this incident where you realize like huh the political violence yes it's on the outside but the call is also coming from inside the house and i wonder if you're seeing that too which is how heightened rhetoric around political violence more openness to political violence is spilling out to the members themselves
1: Yes, I think for sure some of the members who are a little bit more from the fringes of the party, that's been an issue since January six. So one of the reasons why Pelosi wanted the magnometers is because she pointed out that there had there were some Republican members who were appeared to be tweeting where her location was. For example, that was a uh, an issue she had with Lauren Boebert. And, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene had been friendly with some people who ended up, you know, leading the insurrection. And before she was a member of Congress, she had said, you know, Pelosi should be executed for treason or something along those lines. It's a crime punishable by death is what treason is. Nancy Pelosi is guilty of treason and we want her... And that's the exact kind of rhetoric that, you know, you're seeing from people who are actually, like, carrying out um, some of the violence. So Pelosi was making the point of, you know, the threat is coming from within the House and we need magnometers until, until everyone's trustworthy, basically. And that's part of why Republicans resent it, because they, you know, reject that characterization.
0: It's hard not to listen to you, though, and think that there's a political party, the Republicans, that shares the blame. this rhetoric and I, I would say
1: potentially the violence as well. I think that the fact that not every single Republican, prominent Republican immediately condemned what happened to Paul Pelosi is definitely represents a shift compared to past years and is worrisome and raises questions about how much the party as a whole is rejecting an act of political violence for sure. I think, you know seeing Donald Trump's son make fun of this attack and refer to a conspiracy theory that's trying to basically erase the fact that this is an act of political violence.
0: Yeah, just to be clear, Donald Trump Jr. tweeted out his Halloween costume was Paul Pelosi, and it was a picture of like men's underwear and a hammer.
1: Right. And, you know, there was another Republican lawmaker who ended up deleting a tweet but had you know, sort of tasteless joke about it. I mean, that's pretty shocking. But I, I would say I think what some Republicans are saying is that they are targets of political violence, too. And they sometimes feel like the attacks against Republicans don't get as much attention, like Lee Zeldin, the Republican candidate for governor in New York, getting stabbed on stage. So I think their retort is basically that this is happening to to both, members of both parties. But the reaction is so different. I don't think you could find one Democrat
0: who would say, well, it's just really no biggie that Brett Kavanaugh had someone out his, outside his house threatening his life. Like that, I think every Democrat would say, yeah, that's bad. Let's talk about it.
1: Yeah, I think that's what is kind of different and worrisome is like, The erasure of what happened to Paul Pelosi that was endorsed by, you know, people on the right, not as much politicians, even though you are seeing that, but like especially kind of pundits on the right. I mean, that's very scary because if we can't even agree that this happened, then you can't, you know, you're basically erasing political violence when it's targeting Democrats, uh, which is a tacit endorsement.
0: I'm wondering what you're looking for on Election Day that sort of tells you more about where this is headed. I'm looking at Arizona, for instance, where there's been dispute about poll watchers. And this is different than acting out against a politician. This is sort of taking it to voters a little bit. Do you see that as an extension, what's happening there, of
1: what happened with Paul Pelosi and and what you've seen ramping up over the last few years? I absolutely see the threats against poll workers and nonpartisan election workers as an extension of what happened to Paul Pelosi, uh, because these are just, you know, basically hardworking bureaucrats who are just trying to do their very unglamorous job of making uh, the basic tenet of our democracy work. And they are now, you know, facing threats, harassment. They're retiring at a record clip because of it. And just that idea that, you know, doing your job could put you in harm's way. And the fact that there's people are so angry and so convinced of lies about the 2020 election that they're taking it out on just regular people. That's very similar to David DePape, you know, allegedly Being very mad about 2020 and a bunch of other conspiracy theories and wanting to break Nancy Pelosi's kneecaps over it. It's just this toxic mix of powerful, motivating lies that have convinced a lot of extreme people on the fringes of society. You know, as I was thinking about this
0: Nancy Pelosi story, I couldn't help but think about how back in the summer, Republican Adam Kinzinger tweeted out these voicemails. He'd gotten, allegedly from constituents, people threatening him, his family, basically for not being pro-Trump enough, for being on the January 6th committee.
1: are going to come protest in front of your house this weekend. We know who your family is, and we're going to get you.
0: And it just made me wonder, like, when does running for office become prohibitively dangerous. Like we're already seeing people like Kinzinger just basically say, I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore. And then it it becomes this question of like, well, hold it,
1: who's left here? Are members asking themselves that question? I think so. Yeah, I think that is a question you're hearing more and more, especially on the Democratic side, though obviously, you know, Kinzinger is Republican. But yeah, I think the question of is it worth it You know, if 30% of the country thinks that my party stole an election or that Democrats are part of this, like, QAnon pedophile conspiracy theory, is it worth it? Is it even possible to win people over or convince people that you're trying to represent them when such powerful lies have convinced so many of them?
0: Yeah. Liz Goodwin, I'm really grateful for your time and for your insight. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Liz Goodwin covers Congress at The Washington Post. And that's our show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support us is to join Slate Plus. It's really easy. Just go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus and sign up. You can do it right now. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Dalshad, Shad, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support right now from Anna Phillips, Jared Downing, Victoria Dominguez, and Colton Salas. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. I'll be back in this feed bright and early tomorrow. Catch you then.